The book dream inside you cannot wait. Never before have so many people questioned, what do I really want to be doing? For a lot of us, that means writing a book. Long-deferred dreams, pandemic pause, and the solitude to make them happen means the time is now. The mechanics of book writing can seem mysterious, but they can be broken down, as can the logistical minefield of getting published. You need skills of the craft, but also practical advice from experts who've navigated the path. What's the arc to becoming an author? The value and peril of agenting, conducive editors, the formats to publish and ways to promote. We'll speak with writers, agents, editors, teachers, coaches, publicists, publishers, resources, and guides to navigate the way for those of us brave enough to bring our story to life. Drop in to your book dream and begin to make it real. And now, here's your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. There's St. Patrick's Day hangovers, coronavirus home test glitches, and still a tyrannical terror in Europe. But we need the escape of a good book to keep alive our sense of possibility, to feel all the feels of a hero's journey. Here to refresh us with her startling plots, unstereotypical heroic characters, and twists of fate is author Emily Cullen. Welcome, Emily. Great to have you with us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Of all of those experts that we mentioned in the intro, you are about like five. You're a writer, you're a coach, you're an editor, <laughs> and we'll get to that in our conversation, but I'm thrilled that you're here. I want to just introduce you formally to our listeners. Emily Collins' debut novel, The Memory Thief, was a New York Times bestseller and a Target emerging, emerging author's pick. She is also the author of The Dreamkeeper's Daughter from Valentine Books. Her young adult titles include the anthology Wicked South, Secrets and Lies, and the Seven Sins series, both from Blue Crow Publishing, and then an anthology called Unbound, Stories of Transformation, Love, and Monsters, from Five Points Press. This was a Suspense Magazine's Best of 2021 pick, as well as a 2021 Forward Indies Award finalist. So... I think you've got a couple indie award finalists from Forward out there now, Emily, and um, it's great to have you with us. I wonder if we could talk about the power of the opening sentence uh, as we begin our conversation. From the Siege of the Seven Sins, uh, I'll read the opening line of the book. The first time I condemned a man to death, I was 10 years old that's spoken by Eva. So that's, that's very gripping. And um, there's life and death stakes here. Uh, there's, you've really got our attention now, Emily. And I wondered if you could let our listeners know, do you envision the opening line, the opening sentence to your books first, or has the story formed in your mind before then? Um, That's a great question. I think that often depends on what book I'm writing. I think just like every child is different, um, every book is different. And and, um, I, in some cases, when I write, um, a particular character will come to mind first or a particular stretch of dialogue or um, even a particular setting. Um, In this particular case, that line just kind of 
popped into my head fully formed. And I knew from the beginning that it was always going to be um, the first line of the first book in the series. And I do believe that first lines um, have a great deal of power in a novel. Because if you think about it, if you already know who an author is, or you're already excited about a book or a series, maybe the first line doesn't matter as much um, because you are already in the mindset where you're going to enjoy reading this and you're going to pick up the book and keep going no matter what. But if an author is new to you or a series is new to you, um, or especially if you are an emerging author and you are pitching an agent or an editor and you want to persuade them to differentiate your work from all of the other um, work that's in a pile, the slush pile as we call it, um, then that first line darn well better be good. Um, and so, you know, there's a, there's a number of favorite first lines that I can think of, you know, floating out there in literature. But um, when this first line came to me, it excited me as an author to keep going and figure out, you know, who is this little girl who condemned a man to death when she was 10? Why would she have to do such a thing? Is it something that she did gleefully or is it something that she did reluctantly? How did it affect or change her? You know, what did it mean in her life? And so I feel like, um, you know, you can put a line like that in there for shock value, um, but it's a lot more impactful if it's really fully couched in the significance for the character. Um, and so, yeah, when I, when I wrote that first line, it really did stay with me. And, and for a while, the book was just that first line floating around in my head. And, and then the rest of the book kind of grew around it. Because it does beg so many questions. As you say, it's a, it's a startling starting point. It's, you know, how can this be? And what happens to her life as a result? I, I thought when I read it, it was so impactful um, that it must have arrived in your consciousness, and uh, I'm glad to hear this that 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 was so. Um, when you talk about great first lines, it seems as though you know in the competitive nature of reading, where there's so many offerings, that no matter who the author is at this point, at, you know, you open a book and you you have to be grabbed by the throat almost, and you know. This is going to be a good, you know, a, a wild ride. This is going to be a fun journey. So um, I just, uh, I commend you for it. And I wonder, what are some of your other favorite opening lines that you can think of? Uh, well, one of my very favorites comes from um, Stephen King's Dark Tower series. And I think um, it's one of his lesser known in the world of Stephen King. It's not like The Shining or Pet Cemetery. It's more of a fantasy series, although he does fold in elements of horror, uh, horror uh, subsequently. Um, but the very first line of the very first book in that series is, um, the man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed. And that really, I love that first line. Um, because when you think about it, okay, so if you, were, if you were to break that apart, so you've got the man in black. Well, other than Johnny Cash, you know, the, the yeah. idea of someone being clad in, in all black, that kind of has, it's got an evocative nature to it. You know, why is he wearing all black? What is it about him? You know, it's got, is, is, it, is, it, is it sinister? You know, that's certainly what it seems to evoke. Um, is it a uniform of some kind? Is it, you know, paranormal of some kind? What What is it? And we know he's a man already. And then you've got that verb fled, right? So right away, you know, 
Okay, so the man, we don't know anything else except for there's a man. He's clad in this potentially kind of creepy clothing, and he's running from something. And then we have across the desert. So, you know, immediately you get that element of setting that's dropped in, right? So that element of setting a desert is a very evocative place. He's not fleeing across the street. That would bring to mind the image of dodging cars. He's not, like, fleeing across the backyard from a football. He's fleeing across a desert. And so we know a desert is a place that can have life or death stakes. It can also be very visually evocative, right? That's just the first clause. Mm -hmm. And then we got the second clause, which is, and the gunslinger followed. So now we know who's chasing this man who's fleeing across the desert. We don't know, you know, who is this gunslinger? Well, it brings to mind these images of the Wild West, right, which is evocative in and of itself. Um, So we think maybe we can picture this gunslinger, but we don't know who's on the side of the angels and who's on the side of the devil here. Is the gunslinger rightfully pursuing this man in black? Is the gunslinger the bad guy? You know, right away in this one sentence, you've got the setting, you can picture these two people, you've got the sense of being chased, and you've got a conflict. And I think that that is, you know, a tremendous amount of weight to put on a single sentence. But Stephen King manages to accomplish it, and that's why I love that first line so much. Brilliant. Also, I mean, just to visualize it, as you say, um, you know, the desert is this white, sandy place or gold, sandy place, and then the black, you know, it's such a stark contrast. And then, you know, it's a kind of void into which this huge drama is going to be played out, and you wonder, is the black morning even, or some other, I mean, it's so, you're right, it's so rife, everything about it is just really full. Um, I wonder to, you know, when you mentioned Stephen King, because um, you're of the younger generation, and, you know, it's now we're a couple generations in to the genre of fantasy, and I wondered if you would kind of um, weigh in, I find the genre to be much more closely hewn to the storytelling tradition. It's back to, it's not fairy tale, um, as my husband said over coffee this morning. Well, it's like fairy tale. It's like not really, these characters have true grit and authenticity. Um, but we are, it seems as though we are going full circle back to storytelling as opposed to um, a very long, uh, it would be oppositional, uh, you know, trend in memoir, nonfiction, self-help. Here in, in fantasy, you have these heroic characters. They're almost like role models instead of telling us what to do. They're more or less living and showing us what to do um, in the way that characters really do in the stories. Um, do, how do you see it as a trend, uh, and, and do you feel this way? Um, yeah, it's a, another good question. So, I mean, I think that, oh, there used to be a real trend towards sweeping fantasy with epic world building and you know let's think about like Patrick Rothfuss and Name of the Wind um, you know you can think about you know Tolkien or you can think of Game of Thrones and of course those are all you know white male authors um, but that there was a lot of latitude given there in terms of taking the time that you wanted to take 
to build the world. And it could build very, very, very slowly. And, and there was this notion of epic fantasy, right? And I think that, you know, we are now in a time where there's a lot of immediate gratification at our fingertips, um, whether it's expecting your internet page to load in one second, or as we mentioned earlier, there are so many different um, forms of media and so many different books competing for our attention. So one thing that I have found, um, you know, and in the realm of fantasy, you know, I write within um, young adult um, fiction, so that is even faster paced. But I, I do think that there, we still want the rich world building. We still want the intense um, conflict between characters. We still want those strong and unique voices. And of course, now, as there should be, there's a tremendous emphasis on diversity of all kinds, whether it's neurodiversity, racial diversity, um, diversity of ability, um, diversity um, in all ways. And we're seeing that much more present on the page, including in fantasy, which I think is very, very important. Um, but I think that what we're asking of our fantasy books to do now is to pack all that in more tightly. Um, so it's not less of a demand on the fantasy author, and there's certainly not less of a demand on the reader, but I think readers are now very well informed and educated about the genre of fantasy, and they're very familiar with some of the tropes and with the hero's journey, et cetera. Um, so readers are incredibly savvy. Um, and I mm -hmm. think that, you know, books need to do a lot more frequently in a lot less space. Um, and so that is definitely a trend that I have seen um, for sure. And I think in a way that is good because it forces you as a writer um, to really be economical about the words that you use to really think about whether something needs to be present on the page. And I think, you know, for young people in general, um, and, you know, my Seven Sin series is a YA series, there is something really wonderful about fantasy because it allows young people to see themselves on the page and see themselves in the viewpoint um, and the place of whether it's the protagonist or the antagonist and to, within these fantastical worlds, imagine what decisions they might make in the hero or heroine's shoes, um, what decisions they might make in the villain's shoes, and to really envision, you know, how does this relate to my own life? And it gives, in some cases, you know, if you are a young person who's living in a scenario where you're really, really struggling in your daily life, it lifts you out of that space into a place where anything is possible and gives you the ability to re-envision who you are, what you can accomplish, and what you're capable of. And this is, of course, especially true if representation is, is of all kinds is present on the page. So I mean, those are some um, examples of what I've seen evolve in the genre of fantasy, and I think it's all for the better. And even one character that I've gotten to know through your books, Eva, she she is kind of an outlier. She feels herself to be an outlier. She has very dark braided hair. She's in a realm of, of blondes with blue eyes. Um, and she she's different inside too. She has a social conscience. She's in a very re sort of a repressive um, regime. A kind of a um, it's a utopian uh, or dystopian place. Um, but she doesn't seem, she doesn't think the same thoughts. She has compassion for 
this person um, that is hanged or, uh, you know, who is guillotined. And she, she is not necessarily, so she, the kid who is reading this, a young adult or even the adult um, who's revisiting a painful youth or, you know, a youth of, of feeling slightly outside of the box or just alienated in any way, you know, it's, it's really a great way to identify um, and create a sense of belonging with someone who's thinking for herself, right? She's now, she's not going to follow all of these rules. She's going to be an individual and that also models something for the reader. Um, and I, I have to um, allude to the trailer for the book, Siege of the Seven Sins, because it's fabulous. It's on your website. And Millie Cullen, uh, which is one L, by the way, C-O-L-I-N. And that trailer, Emily, it feels like it wants to be a full-length film. Um, is that about to happen? <laughs> Are you getting any kind of <laughs> echo on this kind of, because it would be wonderful as a series. Um, yeah. So the, um, the trailer for Sword of the Seven Sins, which is the um, first book in the series is a trailer that um, I made and I had so much fun making it. And then the trailer for the um, second book in the series, um, I collaborated with a good friend of mine to make that. And, you know, I feel like, for me, I love book trailers. Um, there's been a trend with book trailers. They used to be able to be longer. Now they need to be shorter. Um, so that's a challenge, really packing in all of the elements that you want to pack in and really writing the taglines in a way that conveys, you know, the entirety of the book in such a short space. Um, but, you know, the book series, I think it it is um, filled with action. I mean, there's a lot of deeper emotion in there, too. But, you know, it's a very visual series in some ways, and, and there is so much action woven into every scene, even, um, you know, very deeply connected, of course, to what's going on with the characters internally. Um, but because of that, it was so much fun to make those trailers because, in um, the other stuff that I write, which is romantic women's fiction with a supernatural twist, it can be harder to represent that um, on on a screen. But with The Seven Sins, because, you know, I've got my main characters who belong to this group called the Bellators of Light, the Warriors of Light, and, and um, they, you know, wield swords and they throw knives and they do all of this and there's chase scenes and, you know, there's... Um, some violence in there for sure, um, but there there is a lot of action and motion, and so I think it does lend itself really nicely to visual representation. And I have found that making those kinds of trailers are a really nice way to reach out to an audience that you want to let them know what the book is about, but maybe you know they're visual and maybe they don't know if they want to devote the time to the book, and maybe they don't want to take the time to read a blurb, um, but they might press play and watch 60 seconds or 90 seconds of um, this really fun embodiment of the book on a visual level playing out across their screen. So, and, and I also just think it's so much fun to make. It, it forces me to really distill down to um, the heart of the book, both in terms of image and in terms of words. So it's a great exercise for me to make those mm -hmm. trailers. Um, and I've had so much fun with it for sure. And it's so enticing because, of course, we want to see more. <laughs> um, we are going to pause for a commercial break here. And uh, when we come back, we'll continue our conversation. Fascinating uh, author Emily Cullen 
Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Emily Collin. And you, Emily, are a very generous author. You offer free chapters on your website, emilycollin.com. You also act as an editor and coach. And in that note, you, you'll edit the first five pages of a manuscript for free to see if it's a good fit with you, with your genres that you like to delve into. And you're generous with your teaching as well. Um, not all authors are so interactive or, or democratic. And now you have Five Points Press, which is a kind of a communal effort with other, four other authors. You've banded together to publish books and to tell personal stories, you know, about making sense in this world, um, which was formed during the, uh, the, the press was formed during the pandemic. Tell us about Five Points, what it does, um, and your experience with it, yes, as, as being your own indie publisher now as opposed to working with Ballantyne and some of the five, the top, the big five publishing houses, by contrast. Sure. Um, well, so, yeah, my, um, I ha- I've had a range of different experiences in the publishing industry. So I, I used to work in small press publishing, and that was quite a while ago. So it was before I had published any of my novels, but it gave me a really good sense of what happens behind the scenes, which of course has changed to some degree over time, but some of it remains the same as well. Um, and so my adult women's fiction has been uh, traditionally published uh, by Ballantine Books, but my 
Young Adult Fiction, the Seven Sins series, and the Wicked South Anthology were published by a small North Carolina press called Blue Crow. And so that was a very interesting experience, uh, having such a diverse sense of what it's like to be published by such a large traditional publisher versus a small traditional publisher. And again, some similarities, but some big differences. And all of this combined with the work that I had done previously in editorial and marketing gave me a strong sense of what needs to happen behind the scenes to bring a book into the world. And I have a small group of writers that they're located all over the world, actually, that we talk every day. And during the pandemic, um, we were talking even more so than before, because like everybody else, you know, all of us had our schedules altered. We were at home more um, and we were looking for something positive, a form of creation. And, you know, among us, we're all writers, but Two of us had independently published before. Two of us were also designers. One of us had a lot of experience in marketing, and two of us had worked as editors. So between the five of us, we would joke around and say, you know what? I think we could really publish a book. We could do an anthology one day. Why not, right? That would be fun. You know, two of us could split the editing. Two of us could split the design work. Um, The fifth could help on the marketing end. It'd be great. Um, But we kicked around the idea, but we were all always so incredibly busy that it just never really came into fruition. It was kind of more of a joke than anything else. And then during the pandemic, we started to think about this more seriously. And I think we all felt like we needed an anchor and we all felt like we needed something positive to work towards. And so we thought, yeah, let's do this. Let's do this anthology thing for real. And we decided to make the theme transformation because we felt that all of us were really being changed and transformed as everybody else in the world was as well by the pandemic. And we knew we wanted it to be for a young adult audience. And we knew also that we wanted to make the digital version of the book free on all platforms uh, because we wanted young people who might feel trapped in their homes, trapped in difficult situations due to the pandemic, to be able to have free of charge access um, to this book as a means of escape. And we knew also that we wanted diverse representation in the book. So we were located all over the world. So we knew we'd have diverse geographical representation. We also wanted um, diverse representation in terms of gender and sexuality, in terms of ability and disability, in terms of um, religious and racial background, all of all of these different things. That was very important to us. And so um, we decided that we were just going to call ourselves Five Points Press because we're in five different points around the globe, one of us in Columbia, South America, one in England, one in France, one in the Bronx, and myself in North Carolina. Um, and we put out a global call um, for short stories for the anthology. And we also did some um, hand-selecting of people that we knew we wanted to invite to participate. But there was a competitive submission process. And myself and the other editors split up the stories and looked at them. And we all voted on who we wanted to include. And then once we had chosen that, then myself and the other editor each edited, you know, half of the stories and then looked over each other's work to swap because we both contributed as well. And then um, we had um, our two designers who also contributed to the book. Um, They did the interior format and um, for the hardcover and the paperback. So we did hire someone to do the interior for the ebook. Um, And then they designed the beautiful cover as well. And, um, we were so excited to release it, and we did a 
little international bookstagram tour with it. We did some events online with it and an event in, an event in person with it. Um, and that little, we call it the little anthology that could, it just was um, a finalist for the uh, Forward Indies Awards in the anthology category. So um, I think for us, we were really excited about that because it, it, it just, it was something, it was a creative collaboration that I think wound up being really important to a lot of people in a time of need. It's fantastic. So the themes are love, transformation, and monsters. And who doesn't love that? Um, I think that the fact <laughs> that you really reached out, uh, globally reached out, also it just makes it such a, a beautiful collaboration, not just amongst yourselves, but that you really did reach out. Um, and that's very encouraging to authors, you know, who might like to submit to an anthology. Will you do something like this again? Is what's the future of Five Points Press? Um, I think that we might do an anthology like this again. Um, we've talked about it. Um, right now, um, all of us are very busy with our own uh, careers, but I think if the opportunity arose to do it again, we certainly would because it's just been such a, a positive experience and um, the combination of experienced authors and emerging authors that we really wanted to give the opportunity to and um, a little community has sprung up around it and some folks from the anthology, you know, we still keep in touch with on a regular basis. And so, you know, it really was just such, such a wonderful thing to do and we're definitely leaving the door open for doing something like that again. I can only imagine how much work it really was in terms of coordinating, assembling, and, you know, folding in all of those layers. I, I really uh, commend you for it, and I think it's so great that it was a forward um, indie finalist. More power to you. I, I think that, um, you know, you're talking about diversity. I'll just mention about Emily Collins' um, biography here. Emily's diverse life experience includes organizing a Coney Island tattoo and piercing show, hauling fish at a dolphin research center, roaming New York as an itinerant teenage violinist, helping to launch two small publishing companies, and working to facilitate community engagement in the arts. Currently, Emily finds joy in teaching classes for the Writers' Workshop at Authors Publish and working as a freelance editor originally from Brooklyn. Emily, you now live in coastal North Carolina. Um, so that's a lot. Uh, I wondered, actually, if your interaction, even as an itinerant violinist in New York, not many of us have done that. Um, I, I wonder if it made you fearless in a certain way. I notice that in your characters, there's, there's always a, man, a mantra, you know, overcoming fear. I will not let fear get to me. Do you think that you cultivated your own fear from your own fearlessness um, through some of these interesting life experiences? I mean, I think maybe so. You know, I'm a very naturally curious person. Uh, I love to learn and I love new information and I, know, I love new places. And so, you know, when I was growing up, um, I was a musician and I played music very intensely um, in a number of different places. And I lived in Brooklyn, but I went to high school in Manhattan. And, you know, now the New York City transit system is way easier to navigate. You know, it is a place where you can look up and you can see exactly when the next train is coming and you can see exactly what's delayed and what's rerouted. But when I was going to high school, it was not like that. 
you know, you had to guess, like, is this train going to come or not? You had to lean over the platform and look, you know, I had to figure out, okay, if this train doesn't come, how much time am I going to have to get to my next destination? And which, you know, which trains might I have to take to get there? And, you know, it really was very much something that I had to figure out on my own. Um, And Mm -hmm. that for me um, was something that I think did breed a kind of fearlessness and openness to experience because I had to figure out how to navigate that without support. Um, And then I ended up doing the um, last um, eight months of high school, basically um, in New Zealand. Um, I decided that I was going to finish up there and travel overseas and so that for me was another eye-opening um, experience that I think really taught me what it's like to be sort of 17 and kind of on your own all the way across the world from where you live. And so, yeah, I think that's a piece of it too. And I did do a lot of performing in front of large audiences um, as a violinist. And so I think because of that, you know, I was naturally very, very shy as a child, extremely shy. And um, that's one reason why my parents got me into playing the violin And, you know, when you're performing, you've got to put that side of you away. You've got to be comfortable in public. Um, And so that, I think, is really something that stayed with me. And then I did a lot of traveling on my own. Um, And Mm -hmm. so that, you know, too, when you travel by yourself and you're in a foreign country and it's just you and your wits, you know. Um, And I'm also a cancer survivor. So I think, like, once you go through something like that and you see how you deal with that and, and, you know, how you cope with all of those things. Um, you know, I, I think all of those things together really cultivated in me a sense of wanting to seize the day and wanting to take advantage of every opportunity and to not allow fear to control me because there's so much in life that you truly can't control. Um, so, for me, I did a lot of work on as soon as I saw that I was afraid of something, really looking at that, deciding if it was a healthy fear or not, and if it wasn't, doing everything that I possibly could to overcome it because I didn't want it to hold me back. And so I think you're so vibrant at writing characters who are overcoming, who are confronting their fears. Um, and I think, you know, really, as you said earlier, showing what's possible to the reader, showing in your own life through these characters, maybe, you know, how to take this next step, how to live by your own code, um, no matter what kind of an oppressive world you're in. So let's get back to the world of the seven deadly sins. I really, I think that this, all of what you just brought to the table is so rich um, and we're so thankful that you've survived what you have. The the Seven Deadly Sins, I'll just read this. It's a spellbinding collection. Uh, dive deeper into the stories of your favorite characters from the Seven Sins series, and then you meet new ones. You discover dark secrets they've been hiding. Witness the courage of rebels who risked their lives again and again for the justice they fought for and the love they hold dear. I wondered when, you know, you, you talked about the opening sentence and you got that full, full-fledged, do you have, do you conceive of the whole series? Does it arrive? Do you know how many books are in a series? Does the series evolve as you go? Um, is it full-blown? Yeah, how does it question. appear to you? 
Yeah, um, so I think what you just read from is really such an interesting thing that you chose to read that particular copy because that is, um, I'm pretty sure, the back cover copy from the short story collection, which is like really the perfect intro to to, um, address the question that you asked. Um, And so the Seven Sins series, there's um, three books in the main series, um, Sword of the Seven Sins, which that's what you read the first line from. Um, I was 10 years old the first time I condemned a man to death. And then there's Siege of the Seven Sins, which is the second book in the series. Um, then there's the short story collection, um, which these all start with S, so it's sort of frustrating. It's so hard to say, but mm-hmm. Shadows of the Seven Sins is the short story collection. And then there's a uh, free prequel novella, Sacrifice of the Seven Sins. And then um, there's what I'm writing now, which is Storm of the Seven Sins, which is the third book in the series. So uh, the Seven Sins is a trilogy with a free prequel novella and a short story collection. And so I knew from the beginning that I wanted it to be a trilogy, and that's how um, it was sold to the publisher. I did not know that it was going to have the short story collection, and I did not know that it was going to have the prequel novella. The prequel novella came actually from my publisher who said, hey, um, I think if you're up to it, that I think it would be a really good thing since this is a new adventure for you as an author and you've never written YA, you know, fantasy before. For people who um, are maybe hesitant to shell out money to take a risk on your work, um, to have a free prequel novella that will kind of be a gateway drug into the world. They didn't say that. That's my wording, but you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I said, sure, I'd be happy to do that. And I sat down to write the, uh, and at that point, only sort of the seven sins was in the world. So that was like, I guess it was July or August 2020 when Sword came out, the first book in the series. It was just that one. But I knew I was under contract for the other two books, and I knew one was going to come out each year in the main trilogy. And then um, when I sat down to write the prequel novella, um, a novella, you know, is much shorter than a novel, even a short novel like a young adult novel. And I was like, what? whose point of view do I want this to be from? What do I want it to be about? And this character that I'd never conceived of before just walked right onto the page. His name is Genshin. He's not in um, Sword. And I had no idea where he came from, but I knew he was the perfect foil for Ari because the prequel novella is from Ari's perspective. And when I wrote it, it just kind of flowed out of me very naturally. And I was like, I love this character. I've got to use him. And so the prequel novella came out. um, And then I had this idea and I thought, you know, a year between books is such a long time. And there's so much out there that's competing for readers' attention what if I release a free short story on my website, you know, um, each month in between book one and book two, and then maybe my publisher would be willing to publish this as a collection, especially if I tossed in one or two short stories that I did not release for free on my website that you could only get from the collection. And my publisher was willing. And so that's what we did. And when I sat down to write those short stories, Again, the same thing happened where I discovered new things about my character and my characters and their world and their motivations and why they did what they did and who they were to each other. And that ended up changing, you know, part of the arc of the story and part of what's going to happen in book three. So I always knew in general how I wanted the story arc to go. But as I wrote and as I got to know my characters better, certain things felt inevitable to me that, well, of course they would do this. And of course they would do that. And if they do this or that, oh my gosh, everything over here has to change. So 
I think that, you know, I'm fond of saying like plot plus character equals story, right? And the author, Lisa Cron, who mm-hmm. wrote Story or Die, she really gets at this. And I believe so thoroughly. You can have the most compelling plot in the world, but if we don't care about the characters, if their motivations aren't real, if they don't leap off the page, then you just have a series of events strung together like meaningless beads. Conversely, you can have the most interesting mm-hmm. characters in the world, but if the stakes aren't high and the conflict's not there, we're going to quit reading. So plot plus character together really do equal story. And as my characters have evolved over the course of this series, it has altered the plot to a degree. So they, they've kind of worked in synergy for me. And they're alive in your mind. They're, they're with you. They're in your consciousness and you're testing out their authenticity, whether this is consistent with what they would actually do. I mean, I think it's a fascinating inner life to be having as an author. Um, and I also love that you, you decided to offer work, you know, the short stories for free on your website. I know people are going to be interested in how to best reach you. What do you suggest as your, I know you're on social media. Um, it's really fun to follow you on Instagram and Twitter. What's the best way to access you if someone said, I think I have a story idea. I'd love this woman um, with so much groundedness and imagination help me with the process. How to best reach you, Emily? Oh, absolutely. So my website is um, emilycollin.com, C-O-L-I-N. Um, and on there, um, you can see there's a contact form, but you can also email me at info, I-N-F-O, at emilycollin.com. Um, and there's also, um, you know, if anyone was interested in working with me as an editor or a coach, there's a page on my website that is just devoted um, to that and to the services that I provide. Um, but, yeah, email is a great way, or you can always reach out to me um, on um, on Instagram or, or Twitter. I'm a little less active on Twitter, but I do see my DMs. Um, and I'll definitely see if you message me on um, on Instagram for sure. Well, I think it's wonderful. I think it's generous. And I think it probably gives you something back um, as a teacher, as a mentor. Um, it must be rewarding for you to to mentor other other authors as you go through your career. Absolutely. Um, I, I worked in the nonprofit sector for many, many years um, for a nonprofit that served youth in need through the arts and other nonprofits as well. And, you know, I um, even as I pursue my own um, writing career, I've never lost track of the part of me that really believes that that giving back is so important. And so that is definitely something that I like to continue to do. Um, I was a Pitch Wars mentor. Um, of course, the Pitch Wars program is now shuttering its doors, but I'm part of another um, mentoring program as well. So I just do think, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. And um, there can be real comparisonitis in the writing world where we feel like there's only so much success to go around, or if this person wins that award, then it takes something away from us, or, or there can be jealousy. But I just really believe that there's enough success out there for everyone and everyone has a story to tell. And a lot of it is about being willing to be open-minded, being willing to understand the market, being willing to work hard, all of these things and getting your butt in the chair every day and working and writing and um, being willing to be open to change. You know, even the most experienced writers sometimes write things that have to undergo heavy revision. Um, so, but I also know that writing can feel very lonely. And so my job, like as a coach, 
when I work as a writing coach as compared to an editor is to kind of eliminate some of that loneliness and help authors feel like there's always someone in their corner who's going to walk with them on that journey because it can be a lonely journey and it is a marathon, not a sprint um, for most of us in the writing world. And so having that encouragement for someone who's been there who can say, hey, just hang in there and you know, this happens to us all, and we all write a beautiful sentence and then come back two days later and think it's the worst sentence ever. There's some universal experiences for writing. So it is important to me to try to give back to others and support them the way others have supported me when I was um, emerging as an author, for sure. I think it's such a valuable sensibility, being a lifeline to others and also kind of dismantling the whole idea of the author as sitting in the lonely, you know, tower and not communicating. And here you are communicating with your other author contacts around the world and with aspiring writers. So you're really kind of demonstrating that a community can make this happen um, and support one another, which is what it takes. It's really not um, it's not an easy thing to do, and I love the fact that you share your experiences so generously. Emily Collin, it's been such a joy having you. We have just a couple of minutes left, and I wondered if you just, um, I feel like there's no shortage of material. Um, you, you address climate change as a backdrop for some of your, um, some of your novels. What can we expect next, um, just as a teaser from you, What's next from Emily Collins in a minute or less? Oh, gosh, sure. So um, in the YA world, I'm working on Storm of the Seven Sins, which is the third book in the series. It's going to close it out. So all of these different strands are going to come together. Um, epic battle scenes, epic love scenes, lots of banter, lots of kissing, lots of sword fighting. Can't wait for that. And then in the romantic women's fiction world, um, I am working um, on a story that I can't say too much about, but it's partially set in um, 1920s New York City and partially in contemporary North Carolina. Uh, there's ghosts, there's kissing, there's a mystery, and I'm really excited about that one, too. It sounds totally fun, and we'll be with you on the ride. This has really been a joy to get to know you. And, um, yeah, so your emilycollin.com is the website, at emilycollin is the Instagram, and to get a free short story, Look at emilycollinnews.com. Um, it's been a joy. Emily Collins, thank you. And thanks to our engineers, Matt Widener, Aaron Keller, Ryan Treasure, to our executive producer, Robert Cialino. And most of all, to you, our listeners, remember to stay safe. And as Eva does and Ari in the Seven Sins series, own your power. Till next week, thank you for dropping in. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.